Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision with Gregory Nielsen. My name is Greg Nielsen. I'm the president and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofit leaders and organizations in the areas of board governance, strategic planning, performance management, and other areas. Um, this morning, I am thrilled to be joined by a gentleman who has a tremendous amount of experience in the educational sector, a gentleman by the name of Barry Wadsworth. Barry is um, with Minnesota Educational Development Partners. He's their CEO. And Barry and I met a couple of months back, I believe it was in November, at the Board Source Certification Training for Nonprofit Consultants. I met Barry there and was super impressed with his background um, and all that he brings to um, nonprofit board governance and working with organizations. So, Barry, good morning and welcome to the podcast. Greg, good morning to you. Thank you. It's great to have you with us, Barry. And you're you're up in Minnesota right now, is that correct? Yep, snowy Minnesota. The snowiest month, uh, snowiest February ever. So we'll be it's been very productive that way. And and you were telling me earlier that uh, you know you had how many how many inches of snow right now? I think we've got uh, 31 and a half approximately and February doesn't end for a few more days so we're supposed to get a little bit more this weekend which would you know put us well over the well over the snowiest February ever and I guess it's one of the top 10 in recorded history so it's uh it's 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 caught up we were we were brown for quite a while and uh and now everything is white and deep now, you being in the educational space, I know for us down in Kentucky, uh, whenever we get a dusting of snow, you know, half an inch to an inch, uh, schools are closed for a day, two days, three days. I imagine people are a little more hardy up in Minnesota. You know, they, they are a little more hardy, and they really kind of handle the snow removal very well. Um, I'll say that things have changed a little bit you know this is the second year where the term polar vortex was used <laughs> and i'm seeing i'm seeing the the decision making kind of shift and i, I think people are being a a little bit more uh they're showing a little bit more caution about children being outside in the cold waiting for a bus that sort of thing and so we're actually seeing more of school around the cold and that's that's something relatively new I had never seen that you know makes a lot of sense given nothing trumps safety and and right you know, some of these temperatures were ridiculously cold but oh I know it. but yeah it's a it's a hard it's a hardy state for sure now let's I want to talk a little bit about your background um, as I mentioned you have a deep background in education actually began your career as a public school teacher up in Massachusetts is that correct that's right. So pretty, pretty natural story. Both of my parents worked in education for their entire careers. So there was a lot that I picked up, I think, through osmosis around the dinner table. Um, I actually first really got sold on the idea of teaching um, I, through coaching. I was a, one of those kids who was sort of sports crazed and overscheduled and played a lot of different things. And the, the really the first jobs I had were in high school working at summer, summer athletic camps. Um, that sort of naturally segued through college where I, I started doing some coaching and um, 
then, uh, you know, came out of college. I was like, I, I like to say appropriately aimless, had no clue about what I was really going to do. <laughs> and re- realized that I really liked the relationships that I could develop through coaching. I really liked being helpful. I really liked being able to see people grow and develop. So yes, I, uh, I got a elementary teaching license. I spent um, four or five years as a public school elementary classroom teacher in Massachusetts. Then I worked for 11 years in what was probably the most uh, informative professional experience I had. I worked at a, a laboratory school that was affiliated with a small liberal arts college. And um, you know, the, the history of lab schools is that they began in the early 1900s as ways to sort of do research on innovative uh, approaches to teaching and learning. Um, and there are not that many lab schools left that um, are still kind of focused on that mission. But at, uh, the, the lab school at Smith College um, I was really fortunate to work there for 11 years and uh, just learned a lot about education and developing really deep reflective practices. Um, learned a lot about educational research. I worked as both a teacher and kind of a part-time teacher, part-time administrator there. So that was really my first kind of dipping dipping my toe into leadership work. Um, and, you know, I had some great mentors there, uh, had some, they gave me great opportunities. They let me kind of flail around and not do some of them very well, which is kind of the way I learn. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm a big believer in the, you've got to challenge yourself and uh, usually fail pretty quickly and then figure out what you did wrong and then learn how to do it better. So Absolutely. I had, I had lots of good mentors there as well as some just wonderful role models there. Um, we, can, we can come back to it, but the, the lab school had a really unique governance structure, which we can circle back to. No, um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, the, the, the lab school was an independent school nested within the college. And so unlike a public school, there, were, there, there was no board that was sort of elected by the community, if you will. So, so there was not that that sort of uh, connection to the community. Um, There was uh, a department of education which ran the school, but that really boiled down to two or three interested college professors. And so it it was really unique and you don't see this a lot. So there there was no formal board. um, And just made made for some really interesting dynamics I bet. in some cases were very helpful and in some cases I think were limiting but I, I mean I'll be happy to kind of circle back to that. yeah we'll, we'll uh, circle back to that um I now you you started out as a as a teacher and then made your way into administration as a teacher how much um awareness interaction did you have with the board at that level um, and how did your perception of the board change when you made that switch from teaching to administration? That's a great question. I think I was uh, aware on a surface level of just the concept of governance and actually 
um, my father was on our local small New England town school board for about 25 years. So I kind of had a, a, a uh, a limited understanding that, you know, there is this board, they've, they've got certain responsibilities. Um, I didn't really pay attention to it much until I think I was, I was late in my career at the lab school when one of the opportunities my, my boss gave me, she was a Kathy Reed, I should say her name. She was a wonderful mentor and saw a lot of things in me that I had had no clue I could do or would want to do. But she allowed me to take charge of our reaccreditation process. Mm. And that then put me in touch with this whole set of really good and helpful standards that we would be first kind of doing a self-reflection on. And then we had external um, educators from other similar schools who came and sort of helped us, you know, helped us figure out how much we were walking our talk, really. Um, and there was a whole section on governance. And I found that really interesting. I was just very much a sponge at that time. And, and I, I thought, oh, this is really interesting because there are all these governance standards. Again, because we were a laboratory school, we were this really weird mutation where we did not have a board. Um, and a number of the questions that came up um, from the visiting team who sort of wrote a report after visiting our school, a number of the questions came up around the, the pros and cons of our governance model. So that was really, right. that was really where I kind of first encountered the concept. And, I, and I, I would not say that was a lot of deep experience, but um, when, I, when I sort of took the leap, just moving forward a little bit, when I took the leap from uh, kind of doing some teaching and some administrative work, I really was looking to kind of connect with the, the really the best mentor I could find. Um, that's kind of my, it's kind of one of my main philosophies on growing is, you know, just try to find the best people you can who are interested in, in mentoring and, you know, see if you can, see if you can get to know them and help, help them out. And Always then, a good uh, approach. And then listen to what the heck they're saying. So, um, you know, I searched, I, I got involved in a number of searches kind of, and I, I, I decided that I would be willing to relocate out of New England. Um, ended up getting a wonderful opportunity at a very big and very old independent school here in the Twin Cities in Minnesota called the Blake School. Um, so there I was a division director or essentially elementary principal. Um, the, the, the organizational structure was that there was one CEO commonly referred to in independent schools as a head of school or a school head. Um, and then underneath that head of school, there was this administrative team. And, um, you know, my role as elementary principal reported directly to that person. So I, I, I had a wonderful opportunity to um, be involved in a lot of things, including serving on a number of really impactful board committees. So this was the, the Blake School, just in a nutshell, is about 125 years old. Um, the oldest, biggest, 
um, arguably, you know, one of the, the, the best independent schools in the state and the, the Midwest. Um, and so very high functioning school, about 1400 students on three campuses from pre-kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, so our board had about 32 members and wow. um, very, very uh, interested, engaged, and for the most part, quite successful and powerful people. Um, and um, that was a learning experience, just sort of being in the midst of those folks and seeing how this, this, whole, this whole board system worked. And then in particular, I was fortunate, my mentor, the head of school at the time, um, he was amazingly successful at uh, kind of managing this board and, and helping this board um, know its role and, and, and be successful. So the, you know, the 32 member board, the, the, the head of school reporting directly to that board, um, the, there, were, there was a very well-developed committee structure. So I, I would sit in on, I don't know, in, in any given year, probably three or four of the committees. One of them focused on kind of academic program. One of them focused on uh, parent relations, um, you know, occasionally coming before finance committee to talk about division specific budget things. So that was a real kind of immersion experience for me. Um, and, you know, I, I really learned a ton. And just to, to, to circle back to your good question, the, that really at the Blake School was a very traditional, well-established independent school governance model um, in contrast to the, to the lab school, which was, you know, a couple of professors, one lead administrator, pretty much making all the decisions with some occasional contact with a with a dean at the college right. so you know the, the 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 very lean and mean model if you will um and then this big sprawling political you know just with various <laughs> constituencies so those are the, the, that was a real contrast for me and it wasn't necessarily you know there were times when i felt like i was kind of whipsawed back and forth between these different approaches but in hindsight it was a really good it was almost like seeing both ends of the spectrum in a way now i want to circle back to to some of those board governance models but before we do tell me a little bit about what you're doing now what minnesota education yeah. development partners yeah so so my vision is that i've been really fortunate to uh work in not just one but multiple high functioning organizations and um you know in their own ways they've they've served their their students and their families really well um i've been fortunate to as i said work with people who were really good models really good mentors and very generous with their insight and wisdom so having you know having hit a point where you know, I, I've, I've finished up the CEO role. I've got a, a little bit of time before I kind of need to jump into the next thing. I, I, I've been reflecting on, you know, what do I want to do with the next 20, 25 years of my career? 
And for me, it really comes down to addressing what I think is the ultimate equity issue in education. And for me, it's that those places where I've been fortunate to work that are really high functioning, the quality of education there is just outstanding. And uh, what children and families are exposed to and the opportunities they have are world class. Unfortunately, our education system in the United States is very uneven. So I'm really interested in trying to take the best that I've been able to encounter and bring that to students and families who might not necessarily be seeing those opportunities right now. And so I've got, uh, I've got a number of um, kind of streams of work that are starting to emerge. Um, one of them is consulting with organizations that are doing really good work, but don't have the capacity to either grow it or sustain it. So a specific example, there's a program in St. Paul, Minnesota called Project Connection. They've been working at a particular school for 10 years and really doing groundbreaking work in uh, helping families and students who are either disengaged or on the verge of disengagement because of issues like homelessness, um, extreme poverty, you know, what are, what are kind of referred to in the education sector as adverse childhood experiences. Yes. We know that, that, that kids coming from those backgrounds are, are much more likely to disengage from school. And if they disengage from school, then really the whole achievement conversation is, is null and void because without engagement, there, there just can't be any uh, academic achievement. So this, this program has created a mentoring model where the mentors are members of the school community and they get connected uh, with students who are evaluated to be good candidates for this program. So, and they, they meet regularly throughout the year. They do a whole variety of things, um, all with the belief that if children have enough caring, mutual respect relationships with adults, then they're going to be set up for success. And really, until that's present, again, this, you know, all this talk about how do we increase achievement is, is kind of missing the point. Um, so, so what I'm working with this, this organization called Project Connection on is to um, see that, um, that there are a number of things that would just help this work. So one being organized as a, as a nonprofit corporation, uh, achieve 501c3 status, develop a uh, founding board, and um, be a little bit strategic about how that board will grow and develop over time. And then really start going after um, a couple of things. One, communicate out the story, which is an incredibly powerful story. And number two, really start trying to get funders to support this work so that it can be scaled out more broadly. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a really fun project that I'm working on. A second stream of work um, is around, Minnesota in particular has, I think, the, the second or third most charter schools in the United States. Um, I think we've got 
over 300, and there are a lot more coming. I think last year there were 25 charters approved, and that seems to be the clip uh, for the last several years. And those charter schools I see as a big opportunity, again, going back to my sort of personal mission, if you will, of trying to take the, uh, the, the practices that I've seen and the, the educational design and environments that I've seen and bring those out to, uh, to, uh, to communities that aren't seeing that. I think the charter schools hold a lot of promise for that because they're really crying out for, I think, some of what has been present for a long, long time in the, in the best public schools and the best independent schools. Um, so I, I've, got, I've got three or four charter schools that are at the stage where they've um, received a charter and they're either a year or two away from opening the doors. And usually these schools are either started by teachers or they're started by uh, really motivated parents, which is wonderful. What those folks sometimes don't have is both the kind of technical knowledge around education, you know, how do you do school, if you will. And I think you know, as, as you probably see in your work, there's, there's almost unlimited need for folks to start to better understand governance practices and, and, and you know, why to do some of those, those good practices. I think so real, working with those startups is a second stream. No, I love the way you, you phrased um, your passion and, and the focus of your work right now as the ultimate equity issue in education, because we do see that um, certainly here in Kentucky and around the country, around how do you, how do you achieve um, equity in education? How do you provide opportunities for students in public, private, charter schools when there is such a disparity of resources available? Um, you know, it, the, the resources and the funding that may be available in a local public school differs from a local private school, which differs from a charter school. Um, what have you seen in terms of achieving equity when there is such a disparity of resources available? Yeah, I think um, there are lots of challenges. Um, I think <clears throat> the biggest challenge is kind of the mindset challenge, if you will, that I referred to earlier. I think, you know, I, I, I'm not a believer that education can fix every societal ill right so there's 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 lots of historical stuff that poses a big challenge whether it's race or poverty or in some cases gender the, the, those things are real um so just to acknowledge that up front i don't think we can fix them all um but i think at least in ed for educators because i know educators really well so I, I can speak to that i think we as educators spend far too much time on what you know you might refer to as the technical solutions of education in other words you know are you a traditional school and back to basics are you a progressive school and more about the process you know are you a montessori school or are you this school that school i think the truth is there are lots and lots of really really good models for how to do school and and I, and I don't think it matters as much which one of those 
you're using or, you know, a lot of a lot of time and energy is wasted, I think, on things like, you know, which reading curriculum are you using? Which math curriculum are you using? And I think, you know, that largely misses the point of um, the 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 mindset issue that I'm referring to, which is until all the kids and their families by extension really feel like they're cared for and they learn to care for others then i think the work of of achievement is really difficult because kids aren't going to be engaged so i you know i think for whatever reasons we want to assign i think we've got a a high majority uh, not necessarily majority a high percentage of children who unfortunately again for very complicated reasons that we could spend a lot of time on they come to school not really believing that they're cared for and certainly not caring for others or this enterprise of school right and and i think you know that for me is is the big question and so i think how do you address that well i think you have to have um, you have to have systematic ways to support developing, enhancing, supporting relationships in schools. I think you have to be honest that you've got some percentage of children walking in where they and, and maybe if they're really young, the crucial part is their families are not really so sure that, that you know, they're on an equal playing field in terms of how people care about them. And right. I think and I think looking for ways like this mentoring program, Project Connection, you know, I think there are probably many, many great answers to that. But I think if we if we run around focusing on the technical solution, we miss it. And of course, I'm not really here trying to blame the educators because the whole the whole system we've been in for the last 20 years or so has really been about testing, accountability, and I think you need you need those things for sure. But I think that without the um, sort of ethic of care, you might say, and, and really systematic resources and focus on an ethic of care, I think that is sort of down the wrong road, just focusing on accountability. Barry, you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned that a lot of times we focus on the technical, um, how to do school. Do you find that that also permeates uh, the way we think about governance in education? So I think for, for a lot of people, when we think of uh, a board of an educational institution, a school board, um, a lot of times what comes to mind is that public school, um, you know, publicly elected board members. Yep. Um, you know, in your experience, you, you've seen, and as you discussed, a lot of different models of governance. So if you yep. could maybe give us a really high level overview of the different board models you've seen and maybe a little bit about the pros and cons of each sure um so the you know the public school model the publicly elected um governance body for you know that's that that covers the vast majority of schools and and children and families in schools um you know i I think that has the that model has the benefit and the curse. It's like both sides of the coin of this uh, election model, where you know people come in with 
many, many times they will come in with a relatively narrow agenda. So, um, you know, I think that poses lots and lots of challenges um, because I think ideally you have, um, you have board members who see their role as um, kind of collective responsibility for sort of, you know, the, the, the broadest conception of supporting the institution. You know, I think the, you know, as we've seen recently, our, our, our political system is, you know, it's, it's, it's producing some really interesting, some cases, surprising results. And I, I mean, I think that that, I think that that what we see is the result of lots of things. I think, you know, it's just an environment where fewer people are, are for whatever reason, willing to step forward and, and, and sort of seek out those civic leadership opportunities. And then I think, you know, there are, I've seen lots of public school boards where at least some of the members see their role as being sent by the voters to advocate for X. Right. Or, advocate for why when so like, you know i guess really, the, yeah uh, i'm sorry ahead. to interrupt I, I guess the thinking when it comes to that model the publicly elected model is is a is around accountability right you know that that those who are attending and um have have children in public schools are are having a voice and a say in choosing the those who help govern um, the system. But, you know, I, I think one of the things that jumps out at me, and, and you and I had talked about this and, and heard about this um, in the board source work that we did, um, it's really important that a board be a team and that a board, um, you know, be a cohesive group of folks that are working together towards a common cause. And I guess what I'm hearing from you is that sometimes there can be some challenges associated with bringing uh, you know, just as we see in the political system, bringing a group of people who are publicly elected um, together as one team rather than 10, 12, 15 different individuals who are working on their own agendas. Yeah, that's very well put, Greg. That's very well put. It's like this notion of the, the Olympics. There's an international Olympic committee and the international Olympic committee sees itself as the members of that committee are first and foremost members of the international Olympic body charged with sort of communicating back to the member countries, not vice versa. They're not, they don't see it as coming from those individual countries and sort of bringing an agenda to the, to the international group. So I, yeah, I think, I think the point about a team is that that is spot on. Um, so, you know, on the other side, I don't think it's all negative. I, I think there is something, um, there is something good and helpful about having there be um, a system of local, local governance. I, I think that, you know, I, there's, there's a lot I like about that because there's a, there's a responsiveness and a sensitivity um, and frankly, a requirement for participation, you know, I think we're we're probably in a we're probably in a citizenship. We're seeing a lot of citizenship ship challenges. I would argue in our culture right now, but but I wouldn't want to scrap it and say it can't work. I think you know the kinds of things that you do 
in your work actually are the are the are the missing piece so you know where i've seen it work well in, in the public school model is when they do decide either through good leadership or you know through some sort of a crisis we, we have a school board uh nearby i'll just say here in the twin cities that just really went through crisis of functioning it wasn't even a it wasn't even scandalous it was just just complete and utter dysfunction to, to the degree that they couldn't even hold effective meetings. And I think what, what they arrived at was we need some help in how to do this. And, you know, they, they got that help and it, it started to get better. So I think, I think kind of a humility around, around accepting the, the need to be a team and then accepting the help in, in getting there because it's, it's, it's hard work for whatever reason. I, so, I think that's a great insight. I think the boards that, that are the most high functioning, the most highly effective that I work with are the ones that realize just how difficult doing board governance is, that it does take thought and intentionality, that it's not just individuals showing up and assuming they know what they're what they're doing and, and assuming that they have a common purpose, but really taking the time to, to work through those issues at the outset. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Greg. So other so, than publicly, yeah. um, you know, the publicly elected model, that, that model that we see so prevalent, um, what are some of the other uh, models of governance that you've seen in education and, and just a little yeah. bit of the pros and cons of those? Yeah, so, so about, I don't know what the stat is now, but about, about, let's call it, um, let's call it 80% of children in schools in the U.S. go to what we might think of as, you know, traditional public schools governed through the elected model that we, that we just discussed. You know, then you have a subset of charter schools. I'm not quite sure what that percentage is, but, but I know the, 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 the charter school model is a little bit of a hybrid. And I would say it's also a little bit, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it's a little bit of the Wild West right now. Because, <laughs> you know, th there have been like a lot of charter schools for about 20 years. I think there may have been some prior to that, but, you know, it wasn't really, really big enough to, I think, be a pattern or a trend. But you know, charter schools, again, for a whole variety of reasons, and you could argue, there's good arguments, I think, on both sides, um, kind of pro and con charter school. But, you know, they're here. Um, I think what's, what's really uh, similar to the public schools is that charter schools are technically public schools. So their funding comes primarily in a sort of per student allocation from the state where they, where they exist. Um, those boards, however, are not elected. So a charter will be granted under the rules of each state. And you know, they're, 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 they're somewhat different, but roughly the same in each state. There's a department of education um, there's an application process, a charter is awarded, they have certain accountability to the State Department of Education. But one of the things a charter school gets to do is it really has um, almost completely free hand in choosing its 
um, board members and um, very little regulation that I've seen um, in terms of how they how they select that board and how they run that board. You know, they they typically have to comply with whatever whatever state open meeting laws um, exist. You know, and there are some there are some bare bones things like that. But what what I think is particularly interesting, aside from you know, there's there's occasionally a rule for a state charter school that you have to have at least one licensed teacher on the board um, and, or that you have to have at least one resident of the community on the board um, but aside from that the, the the size of the board I've seen I've seen uh, you know four or five person charter school boards for even fairly large schools and then I've seen really big ones like you know 20 25 um, so the, the size varies widely and the, the way the boards conceive of themselves very, varies widely. Um, I think there is a tremendous need for um, kind of education and strategic growth work with, with charter school boards. Right. Um, and, um, you know, so th they're a little bit of a hybrid. The, the, the ones that I've seen that function the best have people who have had independent school or private school experience and who have somehow run into some of the better practices from the independent school model. Um, because that model kind of shifting to, to private school or as they, they usually like to refer to themselves, independent school model, um, that model is much more developed. So there are probably, I think, 10% approximately, it might be 11 or 12, of the students uh, in the United States go to what are called independent schools. And just kind of in a nutshell, those are, you know, 501c3 status, nonprofit, um, governed by boards that are um, sort of per perpetually electing their members. Um, those boards need to comply with whatever state laws, um, you know, but, as but aside from that, get to function um, fairly quietly as they wish. And, and, you know, usually are fairly well insulated from things like state testing mandates right um, and you know others they're, they're they're protected in minnesota i know and massachusetts i know from things like open meeting laws so they 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 do not have to kind of come under the same scrutiny um as a as a traditional public school board or even a charter school board would um, and those independent school boards, you know, those I think function um, function very much like the boards that you probably work with. I don't know your 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 clients very well, but I'm just imagining, you know, that that model that was outlined at our at our board source training. You right. Know, that that really is is highly applicable to the to the ways that these independent school boards run. Before we wrap up, Ari, I want to um, make sure I cover one other topic. We talked a little bit about um, accountability in terms of how the boards of educational institutions um, relate to the public, so families. Um, 
But based on your background as, as both a teacher and an administrator, talk a little bit about what you've seen are some highly effective practices for boards and teachers to remain um, what I'll call appropriately connected. So we talk a lot about roles and responsibilities and, and not overstepping bounds, but what are some highly effective practices for board members and teachers um, to remain appropriately connected? Yeah, great question. Um, the, the situations that have worked the best have been uh, very intentionally crafted and um, I would say strategically focused. So some examples, when I worked at the Blake School, we had uh, a series of committees that were board committees, so uh, led by board members, which would include um, for a particular kind of focal point, which would include teachers and administrators. I can think of one committee in particular that is a good example. We were examining, we were examining um, the rigor of the academic program and the, the, the sort of charter that was laid out for this committee was very specific and, and the board members made very clear that the purpose of this committee is not to get into the weeds around what a particular teacher is doing in their classroom on Thursday at 10 a.m. That the, the purpose of this committee is to do a, a, a high level kind of strategic look at the rigor in our, in our academic program and we want, we the board, invite and want the expertise of the teachers, in addition to some other sources of information, as we sort of make this assessment. And I think if, if folks go into that with, with sort of clear intention and they are, are, being, are being well led by sort of the, the you know, the, the executive director or head of school along with the chair of the board, then that can be a great safe space um, to kind of focus on the future, focus strategically. And what ends up happening is that you get both relationship building, but also some, some two-way communication. So if you've got, I think if you've got committee work that is really well-focused and sort of insulated and not, not getting into the weeds, that's something that I've seen um, as a as a very effective tool, but, you know where I where I don't see it work so well is when for whatever reasons there's not communication. So right. I, I I think the 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 as you put it so well the uh, the sort of appropriate contact requires a real a real intentional design. Um, but I'm a I'm a fan of that of sort of trying to lean into that. Um, and I think if, if you're fortunate enough as an organization to be able to think strategically, and again, that's a little bit of a luxury for, for some places, but if, if, you, if you can get to the point where you can do that, then that really serves the organization well going forward. Well, Barry, I want to I wanna thank you for your time this morning. I know I uh, certainly learned a ton, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners have learned a ton as well. Um, for those who might want to learn a little bit more or connect with you, uh, maybe share a little bit about um, how, how to best reach out to you. 
Sure. I, uh, they, can, they can see my contact information on LinkedIn. Uh, they can email me. Uh, my name's Barry Wadsworth. And the best email is Barry, B-A-R-R-Y dot M-E-D-P at protonmail.com. And yeah, I'd be happy to uh, continue the conversation. And just let me say, Greg, thanks so much. You're, 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 you're humble. Uh, you're very, very good at this. And uh, this was, I just really enjoyed the conversation a great deal. So hopefully we can keep in touch. Barry, I appreciate that. Look forward to continuing the conversation. Really want to thank you for taking um, your time to share your experience, your wisdom uh, with everyone this morning. Again, this has been Greg Nielsen of Nielsen Training and Consulting. I invite you, all our listeners, to reach out to me anytime to learn more about our work with nonprofit leaders and organizations. Please visit my website at www.nielsenconsults.com. That's N-I-E-L-S-E-N consults.com. And Barry, have a great day and uh, try to stay warm and, and keep shoveling that snow up in Minnesota. Thanks, Greg. It was a pleasure.